Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. The resurrection of Christ, which overthrows the curse of death upon Adam and his race for their sin, is proof that God has begun to fix everything in this world broken by sin, including masculinity. Masculinity itself seems to be under assault by many in our culture, some out of a simple rebellion against God's design, but many because they've been injured by toxic masculinity in its various forms. This episode calls Christian men to show the world the glory of God's design of manhood as it should be because we know how to draw upon the same power at work in us that brought Jesus back from the grave. Thanks for joining us today for Season 2, Episode number 22 of Mission-Focused Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. As we in the U.S. enter what will be a contentious debate over H.R. 5, the Equality Act, we will be told that a person in a male body who claims to be a woman has the right to continue in such a state of gender dysphoria, so our culture must bend to accommodate his delusion. We know better. Canceling God's binary design of mankind as male and female is not the right solution to the terrible toxic masculinity revealed by, say, the Me Too movement, nor the horrific sex slave trade carried on by men and based upon men's evil, corrupt sexual appetites. We've seen Western egalitarianism blame biblical teaching about the roles of men and women in marriage by claiming that the Bible promotes white male privilege. For example, the recently changed, that's 2018, American Psychological Association Guidelines for Psychological Practice with Boys and Men, we read, privilege refers to unearned sources of social status, power, and institutionalized advantage experienced by individuals by virtue of their culturally valued and dominant social identities, for example, white Christian male. In other words, broken masculinity is the fault of Christianity, which teaches that men are to be the heads of their homes. In such a world, it would be easy to take the path of least resistance and minimize the biblical teaching of God's design for male and female. Many weak men, including Christian leaders, have. They seem ashamed of God's command, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Of course, we know of extreme cases where abusive husbands have quoted this verse to justify their selfish, ego-centered misunderstanding of male leadership at home, but that is no reason to cringe over God's design. We ought to be spiritually mature enough to understand, as the culture does not, that the problem of toxic manhood is not God's design, but the fall. Are you teaching that to your children and grandchildren? Let's review the fall of godly manhood into sin from just the first four chapters of the Bible. First, Adam is assigned responsibility in 2.15 to protect Eve in the garden. 
But when Eve is attacked by Satan and lured into rebellion against God, Adam is totally passive. He's right there, but instead of protecting Eve from temptation, he lets Eve lead him into sin. God's words of judgment on Adam are not politically correct, but God does not just punish Adam for eating the fruit. He says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the fruit of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground and so forth. Number two, Adam is assigned responsibility in Genesis 2.15 to spend his energy causing Eve, along with the rest of the garden, to thrive. But instead of encouraging words to cause her to flourish, he verbally assaults her. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. When God holds Adam accountable for what happened, instead of grieving over his failure as the leader of his home and bringing enormous pain into Eve's life, he blamed her. Fallen men, including me, have been blaming their wives for their failures to love them well ever since. Exhibit number three of fallen manhood comes in Genesis 4, 1 through 8, which reveals that the first human child, Cain, is insanely jealous of his brother Abel and murders him. Male rage has been wounding and abusing others ever since. Number four, before the end of chapter four, we meet Lamech, who is not only full of rage, but a sexual abuser. Instead of using his sexual relationship with his wife to cherish her, he takes another wife. Genesis four twenty three through 24 record, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Well, men, it's clear that the problem with toxic masculinity in all its forms is not God's design of man as male and female with different bodies, mental and emotional makeups, and different roles in the home and the church. The truth of God's design of Adam and Eve differently to complete each other is obvious in Genesis 1. But just in case we missed it, Genesis 5 begins, When God created man... He made him in the likeness of God, male and female. He created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. It is our responsibility as the men of the church of Jesus Christ to love our neighbors by winsomely seeking the defeat of legislation that encourages transgender or homosexual behavior, period. But I believe we have a second parallel responsibility— that expresses love to those who surround us in the culture, and that is to show them what redeemed masculinity looks like. God has brought the same resurrection power that will one day renew the entire earth into history in our lives for the purpose of showing the world what that restoration will one day look like. The solution to broken manhood is restoration to God's original design, not obliterating that design. And it is the resurrection that gives us the power to do that. Author Tim Keller points out, the resurrection is not a stupendous magic trick, but an invasion. 
And the event that saved us, the movement from cross to resurrection, now remakes the lives of Christians from the inside out by the power of the Spirit. The cross and the resurrection together, and only together, bring the future new creation, the omnipotent power through which God renews and heals the entire world into our present. This renewing power from the future is only here partially, but it is actual and substantial and has entered the present world. The incomparably great power with which God raised Jesus from the dead is now in us. He's referring to Paul's phrase in Ephesians chapter 1, when he prays for the Ephesians that they might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. We need to call our sons and other men to the great vision of showing the world redeemed masculinity and by doing that, point to Jesus. The only power capable of fixing masculinity, or femininity for that matter, is the power of Christ's future renewal of all things, yet made available to us in part right now. And by the way, although there is no sexual union in the renewed earth, God's binary design of gender is not eradicated. God's good original creation will be renewed and he created them male and female. As we guide the rising generation into a world that is increasingly hostile to Christianity, they need to know that the resurrection is not merely the idea of rebirth. It is an historic fact. Nearly every religion of the world has its own origin stories, but for the most part, they serve as examples to follow. Christianity, though, doesn't. It's unique. It doesn't begin with, this is how you should live, but this is what God has done for you. It is important for our children and grandchildren to know that true Christianity is rooted in the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection. In the early 20th century, there was a movement to remove the supernatural elements of Christianity in order to align it more with modern sensibilities. An Easter message in such churches, often in the mainline denominations, would go something like this. We can't believe in a literal, physical, historical resurrection anymore. Ah, but we still have the idea of Easter. Doesn't nature itself teach you that after winter comes spring? That even in a disaster and after death, there can be a new beginning? That even in our misfortunes, we can discover lessons and we can grow and we can begin afresh? That's the principle of Easter. Well, this version of Christianity, which of course is not Christianity at all, is in steep numeric decline today, but still popular with the media. However, as you know, man himself cannot free himself from the enslaving power of sin and the resulting curse of death. Help had to come from outside. Jesus alone could purchase our freedom from sin. He also rose from the dead to bring into history the powers of the age to come in which we will be resurrected and every tear will be wiped away. 
So let's review some of the attempts to explain away the resurrection that we can expect the rising generation, our kids and grandchildren, to hear. Number one, Jesus never died. He somehow was resuscitated in the tomb. But a Roman spear was thrust into his side while on the cross to make sure he was dead. If he had resuscitated, he would have had to have torn his way out of the mummy strips, but they were found neatly folded. And how could he have rolled the stone away? Number two, the apostles stole the body, and the resurrection is a hoax. Ten of the original eleven apostles died for their faith in Christ and his resurrection. You simply can't explain this many people being persecuted and dying for something they knew was a lie. Number three, the Jewish leader stole the body. Well, <laughs> they were trying to stop belief in a risen Christ. If they had his body, they would have produced it to stop belief in the resurrection. Number four, it's a legend made up by his followers. First of all, legends can't grow during the lifetime of those who know the facts. The following summary of what the Christians believed was already circulating before Paul cited it in his first letter to the Corinthians about 20 years after Jesus' death. This is what they were all believing, the Christian church. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Also, there was nothing in either Greek culture or Jewish culture that would have led anyone to expect an individual resurrection in the middle of history. The Jews who did believe in the resurrection believed only in the resurrection of the righteous at the end of time. A growing movement of Jews who worshipped a human being as the Son of God was a radical departure from the history of human cultural thought. It was completely unprecedented. It happened right after Jesus' death. There was no debate about this within the early church. This new belief was instant. Also, had the resurrection sightings of Jesus been fabricated— the myth would have expected the resurrected Jesus to look just like Jesus before his death, as Lazarus did. Yet, eyewitness reports show that there was something about Jesus' resurrected body such that at first people didn't recognize him. Mary thought he was the gardener. The travelers on the road to Emmaus did not recognize him. And the apostles out fishing did not recognize him at first. And then the Gospels claim the very first witnesses to the resurrection were women, since women in that culture were not even allowed to give evidence in a court of law. Why would the Gospel writers have invented them? Furthermore, the early belief in the resurrection is not based on one or two individual sightings. A large number of people across a diversity of circumstances testified that they had seen the risen Jesus. Peter Williams gives us the list. He writes, The resurrected Jesus is recorded as appearing in Judea and in Galilee, in town and countryside, indoors and outdoors, in the morning and in the evening, 
by prior appointment and without prior appointment, close and distant, on a hill and by a lake, to groups of men and groups of women, to individuals and groups of up to 500, standing, walking, and always talking. In our day, the word proof is mostly associated with scientific proof, which is defined as getting the same result when you repeat an experiment. For example, water at sea level boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit every time. But throughout history, guilt leading even to execution could be proven beyond any reasonable doubt by two eyewitnesses. When you look at the eyewitness testimonies to the resurrection, recorded in documents proven to be historically reliable, the factual historic resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most well-documented fact in history. And it also makes Christianity completely different from every other religion of the world. So let's return to God's reclamation project for broken manhood. The resurrection brings us both the power and the pattern for living life now connected to God's future new creation. So what does the renewed masculinity we are to model look like? First, male passivity is overcome. Not only does God punish Adam for sinning because he listened to the voice of his wife, Abraham sinned in having sex with Hagar to birth a son. Scripture includes the detail that it was because he listened to the voice of Sarai. God's design for men to lead their homes is further revealed when God says of Abraham, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. For the most part, sadly, Adam's male descendants, the nation of Israel, failed in this leadership responsibility. In fact, the Old Testament ends pointing to the dawning of a new age, when the hearts of the fathers would be turned to the children. Christ brings his resurrection power into this new age, commanding fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We are called back to God's original design and empowered by the Holy Spirit in this age to love and lead our families. Men, God doesn't expect us to have a clue how to do this because of our sinful nature. It's destroyed that ability. But in Christ, asking him constantly for help, he wants us to show the world strong, godly, loving, masculine leadership in our families. The second part of this reclamation project is that male self-centeredness is overcome. At the core of God's design of masculinity is spending ourselves so that those we are responsible for flourish. Adam is assigned by God the task, avad, of doing whatever it takes to cause the garden and those in it to flourish. He sweats, expending his energy so those he is responsible for thrive. He is a hero maker. That is what Jesus taught his disciples leadership is for, to be servants to others, to help them succeed, reaching their potential. Though Jesus was rich, writes Paul, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, 
might become rich. That is masculinity. Men, it's hard to keep putting the needs and desires of others ahead of ourselves so they flourish. Only the resurrection power of Jesus can enable such consistent unselfishness. But from the finish line looking back, the way you and I have denied ourselves, spent ourselves for others, will, I believe, bring us the greatest joy. The third part of God's reclamation project is that male sexual corruption is overcome. Sex is designed to make a wife feel cherished, beautiful, desired, wanted, secure by being known intimately, but still adored unconditionally. The pain brought to a woman's heart, to her delicate self-image, by her husband looking elsewhere to images or another woman for sexual pleasure, is immeasurable. Godly manhood fiercely opposes the treatment of women as objects to be used for sexual gratification and then thrown away like a piece of trash. Godly manhood fights for a monogamous marriage across society. It imparts to our sons and daughters the highest possible view of sex, like a blazing fire or just cozy embers in the fireplace at home. Sex is an enormous blessing, but take that fire outside the home and it becomes a consuming forest fire, destroying what is in its path. Men, what an opportunity we have to show our culture that sex begins in the disciplined heart of husbands who relentlessly keep channeling their sex drive only into their relationship with their wives and viewing sex as an opportunity to nurture and cherish our wives. That is redeemed sexuality. Well, the power that raised Jesus from the dead that we celebrate at Easter will one day fix everything ever broken by evil. And that power has burst into history during this age. It is the only power great enough to fix our broken manhood. May we, the men of the Church of Jesus Christ, accept our calling to show the world the glory of God's original design for masculinity, leaning in to our relationship with Christ for His resurrection power to do so. To summarize this episode, it is our privilege as believers to realize that the problems in our world caused by bad male behavior are not the result of God's design of men to lead their homes and churches. Such very real destruction is the result of the fall. We must listen carefully to attacks on traditional roles pressing us back to God's creation, which transcends our own cultural stereotypes. But we must also recognize our responsibility to be leaven and salt and light in our culture by men showing the world the glorious design of what God created Adam to be. In fact, celebrating the resurrection is to celebrate the resurrection power that will one day restore everything to wholeness, which has right now intruded into history. We need to grasp the immeasurable greatness of that power to help us and say yes to Jesus' call to show the world, though imperfectly, what redeemed masculinity, as designed by God, looks like. For further prayerful thought, 
Why do you think Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians to understand the immeasurable greatness of Christ's power toward us who believe? See your show notes for additional questions. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed format on my website, forgingbonds.org. This week's Easter episode is a bit of an introduction to our upcoming series, Anchoring Our Kids to Biblical Truth About Gender. As spiritual leaders in our homes and churches, we need to lead the way in helping our wives and kids and others in our sphere of influence know clearly what our children and grandchildren are hearing about gender, see the glory of God's gender design, understand the way the Bible is twisted to support unbiblical ideologies, know what to say and how to reach out to those in the LGBTQ plus life with the love of Christ. Be secure in God's design of themselves. Enthusiastically pursue godly manhood or womanhood in a world that may call you bigoted for believing in God's design for gender. If this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to tell other Christian men about a podcast that helps them stay focused on their mission from Christ by inspiring them each week while they commute or work out. <music>